How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 42 of The Way of the Wolf. On the show today, we're going to be talking about organizational development. What does that mean? How do you use it in your business? I could not think of a better guest to have on the show than this gentleman sitting in front of me right now. He is a motivational speaker, has his own podcast, and then also a coaching and consulting company that focuses on building teams and individuals to become the best version of themselves. The Orson Welles. Thank Welcome you. to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. All right. So let's go ahead and I'm going to have you talk about your history. Who is Orson Welles? What got you into organizational development? Gosh, you know, that, I, that's, a great, <laughs> that's a great starting question. You know, who is Orson Welles? Um, as far as organization development goes, I started my career as a teacher. You okay. know, I taught um, in a private school. So I taught junior high and high school. Uh, for three years. Okay. And, and a lot of that was because I, you know, at my core, I'm a teacher, coach, trainer. And so in, in when I was in college trying to figure out what you want to do, you know, I had, you know, so many different options. And then, you know, I got you got to graduate sometime. So <laughs> I went the education route. And it just wasn't for me. And I was very fortunate that I was able to find a career, or sometimes I say that it found me because I really wasn't looking for it. I really didn't know that it existed. Um, because when I left teaching, I went into a kind of a training role, a corporate trainer role. And then just through a series of events, this opportunity came open for, for me in um, organizational development at the company that I was at. And one of the people in the department said, you ought to apply for this role. And, you know, because you're a good trainer, you do you do well. And that's part of organizational development. A lot of times you do a lot of training. And I got into this field simply be because I was able to use my gifts and talents, what I was kind of naturally gifted with, what I was drawn to as a trainer. But then when I started in the department, of course, I, you know, I got the job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I started in the department, I was able to learn about organizational development. I tell this funny kind of anecdotal story is when I was interviewing, one of the ladies that was on the team, I did a panel interview. She asked me, what, are, what part of the job do you enjoy most, training or organization development? And so this was about 20 years ago. So I've been in organizational development for 20 years. I've, you know, have done a lot in, in the field. And she asked me, what part of the job do you like most, the training side of it or the OD or organization development side of it? And I said this in an interview. I said, um, you know, I, am, I don't really know a whole lot about organizational development. So right now I'm going to say the training side of it. And I, I thought to myself that I must have done knocked out, knocked the, knocked it out at the park on the training side because they hired me, and um, I was very fortunate in the sense that for the next about eleven years or so, I had the opportunity to work number one with a great team. People, everyone in the team on the team were more experienced than I was, as well as my mentor, one of my mentors uh, that I worked for for eleven years until he retired where I got hands-on learning in organizational development. It wasn't something that I went to school for, but it was some, it was kind of the best learning ground because I had the opportunity to learn and grow and develop, you know, kind of in real time. My boss at the time said to me, 
He said, you know, if I need to hold your hand <laughs> in this, then this is not the right job for you. I need you to go out there, learn, make some mistakes, come back and we'll talk about it. I'm absolutely here to support you. But, um, you know, we've got to we've got to talk about we're, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll learn from it and you'll continue to grow. And then I kind of stayed there. I stayed at that company for for 13 years and it was a great experience because I got that that hands-on development in organization development. There's a lot of routes you can take to get into the field, but um, I feel I had, had a pretty good journey there. And it's always been a field that I love because what organizational development is, really, <laughs> I know that may be a question, you know, because oftentimes organizational development in an organization often reports or is part of human resources. But we're the most misunderstood part of the organization because people don't know what we do. I've talked to a colleagues and say um, we ca- we're kind of over there doing, you know, dark magic and making things happen. And that's what it is. And, you know, it's funny because I wanted to when you when we talked about this topic, I said, let me I want a textbook definition of what OD is. And so for those of y'all listening, I'm on my phone right now. I'm looking at a. I think it's just a definition. I just it's the first definition I googled. And I want to read this but then I want to explain it. It just says organizational development is the study and implementation of practices, systems and techniques techniques that affect organizational change, the goal of which is to modify an organization's performance and or culture. The organizational change is typically initiated by the group's stakeholders. And so to put that in simple language, what I do as an OD practitioner, as someone that works in organizational development, is is learning and development, uh, specifically kind of, you know, a lot of leadership development, developing the culture of the organization. So in short, what I see my role as is creating and building a healthy organization. And then you've got a bunch of tools in your toolkit that allow you to help create that um, healthy organization. And it's really comes about through a partnership with the leadership of the organization. I don't I hope that all. It does. But sense. you know, you hit on something right there at the very end. It's a partnership with leadership. Yes. And I think that is something that's so, so crucial when it comes to organizational development is you have to have full support and buy-in yes. from executive leadership, or you're going to be spinning your wheels. Absolutely. I've seen so many instances of leadership development and organizational development where they try to come in and build an organization. And usually that OD function, like you said, is part of HR and mm-hmm. it's kind of at the mid tiers in the organization. That can be really challenging to be effective if you don't have support and buy-in from the top. Absolutely. You can impact certain pockets of the organization, but if you don't have that buy-in all the way up, it's going to be tough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, in, in my experience, I often will you know, be very, that that's one of my very first questions because in, in many organizations, the OD function is a nice to have um, it, because we don't generate revenue. <laughs> directly. You know, yeah, we don't directly in, in generate revenue. However, we impact the culture and the health of the organization. So if you want a healthy organization, you also want an OD function and an HR function for that matter as well that um, really helps build an effective culture within the organization. And oftentimes, I wouldn't, um, 
approach a project unless I really understand the support that it has from the highest level of leadership within that within that organization. Um, I've worked for a number of you know small companies, you know within companies, but then even in consulting work, one of my first questions on you know kind of the intake on you know what are your problems, how can we help you, that kind of thing is what support do we have from leadership? And if it's not there, you can't make it happen. You can't. I mean, there's... um, Okay, so that's actually a good segue into a topic that I wanted to touch on. So we have seen stressors, unlike anything in recent history, over the past 18 months. Yes. At the company that I work for, we've had a leadership development or organizational development team for a number of years. Unfortunately, during the downturn, we had to let go of in the end, all of them. We let yeah. go of a few on the front end, and then towards the end, we're getting 16 months in as an oil and gas company. We just the organization could not sustain that function just because right. it doesn't directly generate revenue. So, very difficult decision to make. Now, from your perspective, what do you think the next 18 months are going to hold for companies as it pertains to organizational development? Yeah, it's very interesting. And so <laughs> and this is my bias speaking, of course. Uh, you know, when I think of companies getting rid of their OD function, I think, you know, that's that's one of the worst things you could do. Uh, <laughs> so it is, you know, simply because from an OD standpoint, you have an you have an objective view of what's going on in the entire company or you should. And one of the things that I really focus on when I'm working within a business is, number one, really, how do I add value and making sure that I'm adding value? And by value, I mean, is how am I supporting the, the goals of the organization, the goals of the, the leaders, and then equipping their teams to you know be able to accomplish those goals? And so when I look at like, you know, when I go back to your question, what 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 is it? What's in the future? There is companies really need to leverage the expertise of kind of the OD practitioners in their in their companies, because what you're going to see is part of if I can expand even on the definition of OD is we help with the people side of change, of growth, of development. Um, we're not necessarily experts in, like you said, like your company, oil and gas. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know yeah. anything about oil and gas. I put gas in my car. It gets there somehow. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's that's the long and short. I know, I know of it. The price goes up. The price goes down. Sometimes I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> I hear, you know, stuff in the news. But what I am an expert in is the people within the organization and what motivates people, what what do they need? What do people need during change in, in all of that? And the the sad thing is that I don't think your company is in the minority in that they let go of their OD people. Oftentimes when there are rifts in companies, it's it's the kind of it comes out of those cost centers, the HR centers that I, you know, I you know, all the the little cost centers within a company. And what they're missing in that is the opportunity to leverage their people. And so with all of the challenges over the last year and probably the fate, we're probably at least another year in these types of challenges that we've had. And it's going to vary, you know, it's being able to nurture the culture of the organization because the culture of an organization is kind of the backbone of the organization because you can go out there and do all of the things that you do but how you deliver those services to your customers 
is going to be predicated by the culture of your organization. It is going to be the culture of the organization is number one, how the employees within the organization experience the organization. So, you know, is it a great place to work? Is it inclusive? Is it somewhere that I enjoy? How does my boss treat me? You know, how much autonomy do I have to do my best work? Am I operating in my strength zone and, and being my best and, and all of that, all of that builds into how are we interacting? All of that's the culture of the organization. In a good culture, then I'm going to serve my customers very well. In a poor culture, um, then that customer level of customer service, whatever the whoever whomever the customers are, is going to to suffer. And my concern is that a lot of organizations are going to put band aids on these situations and make rash and rushed decisions and not consider the long term effects on the culture of the organization. And so um, that's where you know an OD professional or someone can really come in and, and give some advice on how you change. Because you're going to have to change. You are. And, and such, such a good point and so much truth to that. And I think, like you, I have a little bit of bias whenever I look into how this functions and, and how businesses need to move forward. It is very unfortunate that OD is the first place that, that most businesses cut. And the reality is, and you touched on it, is that it really shouldn't be. Because yeah, if you want your absolutely. business to be successful, if you want to maintain that culture that you worked so hard to build, mm-hmm. you need people in the organization that have oversight into everything, that have relationships, they know the dynamics of everybody, and they can help coach and guide and mentor all of your team so that they can be successful. Absolutely. And the, the culture over the years, or over the past 18 months, what I've seen is I think a lot of companies were able to maintain some semblance of a strong culture because mm-hmm. relationships and trust were already established. But as we're starting to see more and more attrition and turnover, mm-hmm. especially now, you and I were talking about this just a little bit ago, is we're seeing so many challenges with turnover in organizations. As you bring that fresh blood in, it's yeah. very difficult for them to assimilate into your culture, especially if they're working remote. Absolutely. Leading a remote workforce is very different than leading a team of people that's right there in the office with you every single day. Right. And so I think we're still figuring things out in terms of do we do this full remote? Do we do a hybrid approach? Do we bring everybody back? And the challenge is no, there is no one size fits all, which you said earlier, whenever it comes to business, they've got to figure out what works best for their culture and leadership has to put a concerted effort in making sure they're able to keep moving that culture forward in a way that aligns with the business values and what they've done historically. So all of that being said, I think, I hope that businesses are going to realize that and start investing more in the OD side of things in the coming years. Once they get financially healthy enough to do so, I think it's going to be a requirement. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I, I know there, there's some tough decisions that companies made out there uh, out there because, you know, in, in getting so don't think I'm not making those business decisions for those companies, nor do I envy the people that have to. It's just, you know, again, it's just my bias. But um, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. You know, I, I think you have to think long term in a lot of the decisions that companies are, are making right now in how does it impact the culture of the organization, the decision, whatever the, because there's pros and cons to everybody working at home, working a hybrid, you know, everybody coming back to the office. You're going to always, there's pros and cons to each one of those approaches. You just got to pick one and then decide how you're going to manage that. 
And, you know, one of the things that you said, uh, again, with all the turnover that companies are experiencing right now, one of the things that's going to be really important, too, is that whole onboarding process. And that's, you know, when you talk about OD, that's one of the things where OD kind of helps facilitate that. Because just think, if you're the president of the organization, a director of a department, you're thinking about the business. In other words, you know, functioning every day, doing all the things you need to do to generate revenue, meet the challenges that you have uh, in the in the organization right now. And then you're also hiring people. And, you know, the question is, how are you making time? Not if you're making time, but how are you making the time for the onboarding process? And what is that like for that new employee? Because that's going to be their entrance into the organization. That's going to be their introduction to the culture of the organization, to their role and all of those things. And all of that stacks up on top of each other to say, for in the mind of that new employee to say, am I going to stay? Do I really enjoy this company? Is this just a stop on the way to somewhere else? And, you know, all of those things, but also how they function within the organization. The better they're onboarded, the better they're going to perform and feel engaged in what they do within the organization. So a lot of those things are going to be very important for companies to focus on as, you know, in the, especially in the next 18 months. It is. And I'm glad that you brought that up. That is a very important topic that so many businesses are struggling with. The company that I work for, as an example, over the past 30 days, we've onboarded 90 or so employees wow. yeah. and termed 82. It is a revolving door. Now, this is a lot of this is just driven by the oil and gas industry itself mm -hmm. right now because all of these companies' activity levels are picking up, the price of oil is picking up, there's, there's more work out there, there's more jobs to be done. And right. so what I've seen is the power dynamic has shifted from employer to employee. Yes. The employees have all the power. They'll bounce around. And what we're seeing is somebody will come in, we'll onboard them two weeks later. They were interviewing for another company. They get an offer for another dollar an hour more. Bam, they're gone. Yeah. However, as it pertains to the onboarding process, I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that there's so much more to the onboarding process than just HR going through the policies. Yes. You have to have it. I mean, I think it starts from the recruitment all the way, all the way out. Like, what is the online presence look like? What are the reviews on Glassdoor look yes. like? How was my interactions with the recruiter? What was HR like during drug testing? You know, all of this stuff. And then whenever they come in their first few days, they sit down with HR, they sit down with safety, mm -hmm. learn all of the, the policies and go through the training, all of that stuff. However, onboarding, in my opinion, doesn't stop once the support functions have finished their job. Operations Absolutely. has to continue on that and has to be able to assimilate them into the culture mm -hmm. and and support them. You can't just like onboard somebody and say, "All right, go get this job." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Because how is that going to make them feel included in the the business? They're just like a number. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're 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 hit a that's exactly kind of some of the things that I've done in my career is there's the onboarding part that the organization does. So the HR, the, what, what are my benefits? What are the, my, what, how much, how many days of leave do I have? What's my, you know, savings plan look like all those kinds of stuff that you, that you do that are kind of the logistics, but then you're right. Then there's a kind of that second level where you're getting acclimated to who, who are my, you know, and I'm going to add on to the, everything that you said in addition it's, you know, who, who am I working with? Who is my, who, who is my leader? So I interviewed with 
probably a panel of people. I interviewed with the my what was probably the, my future boss at the time. But who is this person? How how do they lead? What are their priorities? What are their priorities for me in this role? You know, the job description said this, but what is the real stuff that I'm going to be working on right now? What are the priorities um, right now versus what's maybe something for the future? And it's it, it, it has to be a kind of a two-tiered system because people enjoy working for people. In other words, like, so if you were, if I was reporting to you, I'd be more engaged in my job based upon our relationship, you as my boss and, and us working together, how we interacted, how you communicated with me. And, and, you know, and then on the flip side of that, if that's great, then that, that then that kind of boosts my level of engagement, which when we talk about engagement, it's really about how much discretionary effort do I give in my job? You know, do I go above and beyond, you know, and it's not necessarily working more hours as much as the quality of the effort that I that I put in. And if our relationship is great, I'm going to probably give a good bit of discretionary effort, because if the if my pay and benefits, you know, let's put that to the side for a moment. It's going to be about the interactions that I have. And so when companies go after top tier candidates uh, that have options. They can, you know, literally walk out <laughs> in the street and get another job in the same field. Then that's what's that's going to be the differentiator that may even make them make the decision on: Do I want an extra dollar an hour, or do I want to work in this really great environment? You know, and that's I mean, so that onboarding process is critical to the success. I think the long term success of an organization. And I think this is just one one component to building culture in an organization. Yes. So I'm curious, your perspective, as as people step into leadership roles, one of the things that, that I have noticed is you might have, I mean, there's plenty of examples of the Peter Principle throughout so mm -hmm. many different organizations. And I see, and I use this example quite frequently, but maybe the best engineer on the team ends up managing the engineers or yeah. being a director over the engineers. And that transition into a leadership role is something that people struggle with. Yes. And there's, you know, I've had conversations with our previous vice president of organizational development, and he actually had a buddy to boss program that focused mm -hmm. just on people who were part of a team and then being promoted up yeah. above that team. So I guess my question to you is, what do you find in your experience has been the most successful way or the, the, most important thing for new leaders stepping in to be successful in that leadership role, but then also build that relationship with their employees, like you mm -hmm. just touched on, and how yeah. important that is, especially whenever they were probably at one time peers or friends. Yeah, I, I, that, that's a great question. And I think in almost in every organization I've worked with, this topic has come up. Um, I, but I'm going to even go one step before that is, and really kind of think about who you're promoting into that, into that leadership role, because often, well, in, sometimes the best performer in that role is not necessarily going to be the best leader in that role. And I find this a lot when I've worked with technology companies in, and, and it, I've always known this, but it's highlighted to me more because in technology companies, what's really easy in or what they've done is they have a technical track and a leadership track in in the same field. So you're a um, software engineer and, you know, 
you can decide to say, I'm going to go on this technical track of promotion. So in other words, I'm going to be a high level individual contributor and kind of promote up there. I'm never going to manage anyone. Or you can kind of take a leadership route where I get when I get promoted, it does mean that I'm going into a leadership position. And I think that's something that a lot of companies need to look at in other types of roles and positions and see how that can fit. Because oftentimes the best performer does not necessarily make the best leader. And I think that is the start, that when you promote someone to leadership from within the team, you're also not only looking at their level of performance, but how are they with people? How do they interact with people? Because leadership is all about, it's a people job. Because the higher you go up, it's less about actually executing um, with your own hands, if you will, actually doing the job. But of course, smaller companies, that's a different ballgame. But most larger corporations, it's it's less about you actually doing the job and so much more about how you interact with people, motivate people. And so to kind of break paint, you know, like what's the most important thing uh, are the their their people skills and being able to relate to people. It's also them being able to deal with the mental game and the social game of we used to be buddies and we used to cut up and, you know, maybe we, you know, cut some corners or did whatever we did when we worked together. But now I'm the boss and I have a new perspective of that. It's it's changing that relationship they had, because oftentimes people make, you know, some of their friends are people that they make friends at work. And so it's managing that relationship. And I've seen it done well, where people are able to do that on both sides. The person that didn't get promoted respects the person that gets that got promoted and, and it works out well. But as far as a development, that person that did get promoted is being able to manage those relationships they had before and really step up to that level of leadership. And that's going to be the biggest challenge because then you're free to learn all the leadership stuff and, and, and all of that. But if you can't make that separation of, you know, we used to be buddies and we'd go to lunch every day and we'll do all of those things. But now I'm in a position to where I can't go to lunch with you every day and show favoritism and, and all of that. But and I'm just using that as an example, a small example. But but now I have to kind of think of everyone on the team and how I'm interacting with them. And getting over that is going to be, I think, is the, the biggest thing for people that move into those positions. And also, because what that also does is help earn the respect of the other members of the team. Because everyone knows that you have a close relationship. So if we worked together and I got promoted, everyone knows we had a close relationship and we'd go work out together, go to the bar after work together, grab a drink and, and all of that. But now, how do I show? how do I show that I'm here for everyone and not showing you, my friend, favoritism. So that's something that admittedly, whenever I first stepped into a leadership role of having more than two or three people or so, mm -hmm. it was probably 15 years or so ago, whenever I stepped in and started leading a team of probably about 20, 21 people, something like that. Yeah. And a good friend of mine, someone that I knew since fifth grade, we right. grew up together, we went to high school, college, he worked w for me and with me at three other companies. I stepped into this leadership role, and part of the reason he and I were so close, I mean, yes, we had been friends for a very long time, but we knew what the other person was thinking, Yeah, and he was a very, very high performer, still is to this day. Absolutely. The yeah. challenge that I ran into is not appearing to show favoritism. The reality was he was the highest performer on the team, 
And so anytime something came up, a new project, I would pull him in to the conversation. Mm -hmm. And some of the other engineers were like, well, wait a second, why didn't I get pulled in? So that was a very real challenge that I struggled with for for quite some time to figure out, okay, how do I not show favoritism? I'm using air quotes here. Right. But how do I not show this favoritism, even though he is the highest performer on the team? And I did have to deal with there were a lot of struggles there, and yeah. I had to create some separation between he and I. I had to pull other people in the team. This is all stuff that I had to figure out on my own because I didn't understand anything about leadership or right. organizational development at that point in my life and career. So I was figuring out all of this stuff. But yeah, kind of creating some of that separation and then pulling other engineers into certain conversations. But that was a very real challenge and struggle that I had early on in my career. And I have no doubt that especially in a technology field, a lot of people run into that same issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially when you have, you know, those industries that, you know, it's a small circle of people that were, of course, you're going to have really good relationships. But, I, you know, as you were saying that, I, what I was really thinking about, uh, you know, is... One, it sounds like you handled that that pretty well, but you know, in hindsight, almost a question I would ask you, if, you know, if you look back, is how much how much do you believe? How much do you feel? Maybe even your bias played a role in saying he's the highest performer on the team, mm-hmm. because if y'all thought to get thought, and this is where a leadership coach comes comes exactly. in. By Agreed. the way, exactly. this is this is this is kind of what what. Um, a good coach will challenge you on. And that's what I would, you know, would have challenged you on had, let's say we were in a, a, a coaching relationship then is how much is your bias really saying that he's the top performer versus someone else? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you really measuring that? Um, what is he doing that's different from what everyone else is doing? Is it, is it because you just you you have a bias towards him as your mm-hmm. friend? You mm-hmm. y'all think alike. You've known each other a long time. You've had some of maybe even the same educational and experiences, work experiences. That he'll come up with the same solution that you would. So it's a level of comfort. Um, are you making opportunity for someone else within the company to really step up? And and is is that the case? And so. Not saying that you didn't handle it well, yeah, but it's definitely something that I would, you know, just challenge challenge you on, you know, kind of looking hindsight because mm-hmm. you can only do what you can do in the moment. As, yeah, especially <laughs> and and if I think back 15 years ago, and maybe it's just lack of visibility into it, but I didn't, I don't think leadership development and organizational development was as prevalent or as well known 15 years yeah. ago as it is today. I think there's been. A lot of companies are having realization events over the past five years, 10 years of yes. saying like, hey, leadership, we have to start investing in our people. This is and because investing in technical skills is very different than leadership skills. Absolutely. And I don't think many businesses or leaders realize, hey, these are skills that can be developed. They can be taught. You just have to know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always intuitive how you do it. I mean, it, I mean, for me doing it as long as I have, I, you know, and there's it, it's intuitive, but it's not always because you don't always know even what the, what skills do your leaders need? What are they doing? Well, what are their challenges? And you're right. I think companies are getting a better idea on how much they need to invest in their people and realizing that if they don't, it's going to impact performance within the company or people are going to realize, Hey, I can get a better, deal I'll, I'll leave for more money because it is again you're it's it is about the culture of the organization about the level of engagement 
because the more you invest in your people, the more they're inclined to stay with the company and feel like they're going to have a level of growth. And so their tenures will tend to be longer the more you develop, Mm -hmm. take the time to develop people. So we've been bouncing around this topic quite a bit so far, but talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on building culture. What does it take? Say an entrepreneur starts a company and it just starts rapidly, rapidly growing. What does that entrepreneur need to know to build a strong culture for his company? Okay, that, that, I, that's, this is one of my favorite <laughs> topics about the culture of a, building the culture of an organization um, because I've had the opportunity to even work with some startups and different things like that. And one of the things that I, and just what I've realized over the years is number one, you're always creating culture. And so if you start, if you start a, a company and whether, you know, whatever type of company it is, not necessarily a technology startup or anything like that, it, everything that you do creates the culture of the organization. And so you and a buddy start a company, how y'all interact is going to impact the culture of the organization because you're setting precedent. When you begin to add people, they're added to that culture. Um, and then it's because the culture of an organization really comes about, about by the practices, the rituals, the traditions, how people really interact. And that's what really builds the culture of an organization. I simply say it, it's, it's how people ex within the company experience the company. And keeping that in mind, if I was advising kind of a, a, a new entrepreneur from day one, the things that you begin to do, how you work, what you expect, all those different types of things, how you interact with others, how you treat your customers is all building the culture of the organization. And that's kind of the, the first thing. The second thing is at some point in the early days, you need to write that down. And um, and when I say write it down is, is what are maybe what are those five things that are common within the culture of the organization? And really be able to articulate what are, and you can do that in the form of what are our values, what are our maybe even operating principles. So in other words, how we exercise our values. Um, there's different ways that you can do that, but being able to understand who you are, or, and even some sometimes the your cultural statements could be aspirational. You know, we want, you know, you 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 want to, you know. It's kind of almost like having a vision for what you want your culture to be. But for the most part, it's exp being able to understand where you are and, and what, how you actually practice things. And then being able to write that down. Because as you grow, you want to be able to articulate that culture to others. Like, these are the expectations. These are our values. And that's going to be important because, you know, like you said, you may experience rapid growth and you're growing so fast, the thing you want to be able to do is replicate what makes you successful. And it's not only about systems and processes, but it's also about the culture of the organization. How do you scale culture as your company is scaling? And that's going to be, that's, that's very important. And then the other piece to this is that as the founder, the entrepreneur, the owner of the company, you need to be the model, <laughs> the example of the culture of the organization. And it's not about perfection as much as it is when, when we're interacting and, you know, and you're the, the founder of the company, the leader, a leader within the company, you need to exemplify the values, operate with, according to those, those values in a way that others can see it 
And when you model it, people are going to, it's, it's repetitive. People are also going to, you know, kind of repeat those same type of behaviors and how they interact with others. Um, I had a, uh, an executive one time where they had called me in to work with one of their direct reports that was a, a manager that reported to them. Uh, this was the vice president, a manager that reported to them that uh, was yelling at staff and, and being very verbally abusive and, and all of that. And they were a good performer. And so they didn't they weren't moving straight to I want to fire him. They said, maybe can we coach him and get, you know, help him with some self-awareness. And so we were walking into their office and when we were walking in, they, you know, saw there was something out of place and they were like, and they kind of not in a loud voice, but kind of raised their voice a little bit and was like, who left this out here? You know, why is it, you know, why is this out here? And they started, you know, kind of complaining about that. We need to get this out of here, you know, kind of in a raised voice. And so when we got to the office, we sat down and I said, um, I know we came to talk about, you know, this, this manager, but, and, you know, cause I had a little idea about what was going on with that manager. And I said, but let's talk about the the behaviors you just modeled <laughs> out in the open <laughs> to everyone, you know, a, a large group of your 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 team. And and I said, some of the behavior you're modeling is some of the behavior you're seeing in this this person. So you're actually modeling the behavior that you don't want, not the behavior that you do want. And that's kind of the big key is if you want to nurture the culture of your organization as a leader. You have to model the behavior that you want in the organization and, you know, have a little self-awareness when you don't. So, so many good points. I got two things that I want to touch on. It's, it's interesting how some people can be so unself-aware. Mm-hmm. If they're, they're hyper-focused on their manager or their employee that is exhibiting these sorts of behaviors without realizing that they themselves are yep. doing it, that can be really tough. And I've had episodes and, and videos that I put up on YouTube on, on how to work with and how to handle people that are not very self-aware. Yeah. And this is a topic that Phil Swanson and I discussed a few episodes ago, where how do you become more self-aware? Yeah, that's, that's a... a that's a tough one. Yeah, that's but I'm a, curious it, your perspective. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, and one that I've worked with people on a countless number <laughs> of times because you're you're absolutely right. It it is difficult sometimes, like you said. You're focused on the work, you're trying to get things done, and 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 all of that, and you miss sometimes, and how you're impacting the environment that you're working in, and I think that's almost a, a, a key phrase. And one of the things I, I typically coach uh, individuals on when we're talking about building self-awareness. So first of all, self-awareness is a component of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is something that we all, some, some of us have a natural high level of emotional intelligence. So in other words, how we're, um, how we're, it translates into a little bit about how we manage our own emotions and how we deal with the, emotion, the emotions of others. And so self-awareness is a component of that. The good news is, even though some of us are kind of naturally more, emotionally intelligent some of us are less so the good news is that you can develop emotional intelligence and self-awareness if i think if there was one part of self of emotional intelligence um that i would say for leaders to develop it is self-awareness and one of the the key practices that i that i work with people on is or one small exercise really is number one reflecting self-reflection on how you impact the environment. So a simple question you can ask yourself if you want to build 
your own self-awareness is kind of number one. Let's just say take one day and say, how, how am I impacting the environment that I work in? How am I impacting the people in my environment? If I replayed my day today and I go through kind of every interactions, what are the things that I did well? What are the things where I may have missed the mark? Maybe I raised my voice. Maybe I was hurried or, or rushed. And then how may have that impacted the per- people that I worked with? And that's just an exercise to really get you to practice looking at yourself. It's not. It's not a time. Is you're not beating yourself up. You're not because I don't. That's I don't believe in, in in that necessarily. As much as being able to replay that and get an idea of how you're impacting the environment, and that's one way to do it. So kind of self reflection. Another thing that you can do is ask and uh, ask someone else that you work with, somebody that you trust, somebody that you that feels comfortable giving you feedback. Often a leader. Um, it's hard to go to a direct report and ask them that, although there's some relationships, some leaders that are feel comfortable doing that and some direct reports that feel comfortable giving the feedback. And so if you have that relationship, then then that's, a, that's another one. But oftentimes it's good to go maybe to a peer and say, when you see me interacting within, you know, within the company, when I'm either working with you, is there anything that I'm doing or not not doing that's negatively impacting your performance? And that's actually a good way to phrase it for a direct report. How, in other words, how am I impacting your your performance um, or how you feel about working here? You know, you can kind of tag anything onto the end of that. And so it's really then, you know, just asking for the feedback. And when you get the feedback, that helps you build a, that self-awareness and then make changes based on based on that. So there's a few things that come to mind whenever I hear that. It, it's it is you're right. It's very important to be able to go in, have a conversation, and ask for that feedback. But one, it takes a tremendous amount of trust mm-hmm. on both sides. Absolutely, the person wanting the feedback has to be able to check their ego. And I, I've seen this a lot when people that I work with, you encourage them to do something like that, and they think, well, I don't, you know, I don't need to do that. Well, you do. <laughs> Yeah, you, you do. You, yeah, you really do. But also, you know, I'm thinking back to some of the people that have worked for me over the years, mm-hmm. and there's a few that specifically come to mind. So for all of you leaders out there that have employees that work for you, once you build that relationship and that trust with your employees, take the time to solicit that feedback from them. For me, I've always found that one, it's extremely helpful and beneficial for mm-hmm. the relationship. But I, I respect that person so much more because as leaders, your employees are not likely going to provide any sort of feedback that could be meaningful or helpful. Right. They're, not gonna, they're gonna be so petrified and scared. And you know, I, I think of myself as a very kind, fun guy to to talk to, and, and I don't go off on my team right now. <laughs> Early in my leadership years, I, I had some struggles with that, but I worked through it. it. it well, it, it proves you've grown. So. Yeah, exactly. So, but even to this day, when people come into my office, they think, oh, well, he's a vice president. I don't, you know, don't want to say anything that might upset him, even though I I'm try my best to build those relationships and be kind. So the message that I'm getting here is for all of you, whenever you do get a question from your manager, Take the time and share the feedback. It can be very tricky leading up Mm -hmm. and very difficult to have the confidence to have that conversation. 
But me as a leader, I want to be able to build their confidence so that they feel comfortable to be able to have that type of conversation. So it's just something that I've learned over the years is making sure you're building the trust, the relationship, and you're helping build their confidence and knowing they can provide you feedback. Yeah, absolutely. You made me think of something too, is that, and and I'm going to just describe exactly what you said. As a leader, if you've never asked your team for feedback before, like, you know, just, you know, they might be terrified the first time you ask them. So don't be afraid if you're if the answers aren't really great or if it's not really great feedback or they just say, yeah, you're doing a good job, but keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, the better quality of feedback that you're going to get. Because eventually, you know, if let's say you do, you know, quarterly one on ones or weekly one on ones, whatever your cadence is, and you ask them for feedback, you know, is there anything that I can start doing to, you know, help you? Is there anything? And this is another way to phrase it. Is there anything that I can do more of or do less of that's going to really help your performance? Um, and then you'll be surprised one day they're going to say, well, there is this one thing. And and that day, no, you'll know that you've made a breakthrough. And because it's just like you said, it is about building trust. And, you know, there's a natural in our I, I don't know if it's uniquely American or whatever, but there's a natural distrust of our the person that we report directly to at first. I think it grows, but but that's why as a leader, you intentionally build trust with your team. And as they as that trust begins to grow or continues to grow, the more qual- the better quality of feedback that you'll get. That's a really good point. And one thing that I will also add that I've learned has been very helpful over the years is whenever I've asked open-ended questions. I don't really get any sort of a response like, hey, what can I do better? Mm-hmm. Their mind's going to start going all over the place, and, and they're not going to think of, for me, if I say, hey, you know, this came up a few weeks ago, and I was thinking more about it, and I handled this this way, could I have done it better? Yes. So whenever you give them a specific example, it shows that you took the time and you thought about something, you reflected on it, and you genuinely want their feedback, and you want to be better. Yeah. So I feel that that helps open them up a little bit. Yeah. Another aspect to this is how critically important it is as a leader to be able to learn how to read people. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of different personality profiles and types, and once you start to understand conceptually, I mean, there's there's Disc and Hogan, and like, there's all yes, these assessments, yes. but once you understand conceptually that we are different people... Mm-hmm. And what sort of things to look for to identify, hey, where might they fall on, on a disc, for example. Right. You can then learn how to read them. And you can tell if you're having that conversation, trying to solicit that feedback, are they being honest? Or are they clamming up? Are they closing their arms? Mm-hmm. Kind of like getting nervous. Some people are oblivious to that. Yes. So learning how to read people will help you so much whenever it comes to building trust and then soliciting that feedback from the people on your team. Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned kind of like those behavior. I think that's a that's a. I like. I really like behavioral assessments because sometimes people will think like it pigeonholes them into this behavioral style or that, and that's not really the intention. The intention is to make a shortcut into getting to know you. <laughs> That's And it opens, from a coaching perspective, it, it helps build self-awareness. So I'm a real um, fan of, of those, as long as, you know, the science behind the particular instrument is good. That's, you know, that being said. Yeah. I have my own personal favorites, but... Uh, <laughs> what is it? Tell me. Well, my the one... I, I've used Berkman for yep. several years, um, probably about 12 to mm-hmm. 15 years. And so, obviously, you know, it's... it's um, I have a, you know... It's it's my favorite, but I've also used Disc and Myers Briggs. Mm-hmm. Um, had some exposure to Hogan, um, and but 
what my my goal always is that to help is number one if I'm as a working with an individual is, is help them understand where understand themselves a little bit more because when you take one of those assessments there should be no surprises you kind of know yourself but it's how it's it's what you do with that information is is what's important and so in those cases like you talk about you know going back to what you're saying about you know as a leader reading it's about reading body language and 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 knowing who you're working with and knowing when a behavior is a little bit off because you know we talked about the challenges of you know, the last almost two years now, I guess. Uh, I was going to say year, but it's yeah. almost two. We're, we're two years into this. I mean, I guess approaching three, I guess. Um, but it, it's, it's you know, what's happening with that high performer that's not a high performer anymore? I mean, there's definitely something there, especially when you're ha- if you're having a conversation, they're not as engaged, all those different things. It, it, and it's it's knowing the people that you're working with. And a lot of that, if it's you're talking about a single interaction, it is about body language, like you were saying, and, and what they're saying. But often there is something behind what people are not saying. Um, and sometimes one, one thing that a leader can do in some of those cases is when they feel that there is something that someone's not saying, is just reassure them that, you know, I, I, I feel like that there's something that you want to say, but I just want to let you know that you know, this is a, a safe space. You can say what you need to say. And I, I, I just really, I'd like the feedback because I want to create a better environment or however you want to say you I want to create a better environment, but set the stage and say, Hey, I really want to know what, what you think, what you feel, what you've experienced. And so I can understand it so that we can address it, you know, depending upon what that situation is, but making people feel safe, I think is very important part of building trust as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I know earlier I said there's two points that I wanted to cover. I want to circle back around on oh, building culture. Just a real quick. Yeah, note. I think we kind of <laughs> went we in a different direction. Exactly. That's but okay. I, I think one of the things that is so crucial whenever it comes to building culture is knowing that it is going to be built whether you're focusing on it or not. Yes. That is so huge. A lot of times entrepreneurs starting a company, they're hyper-focused on developing this product or or refining this service and they're unintentionally building a toxic culture. Yes. Not that they're trying to, right. but you have to focus on it. Yeah, and that, that's why kind of one of my, my mantra in relation to culture is that you're always creating culture. No matter what you do, whether you're it's whether it's intentional or intentional, you're always creating culture. And so as an entrepreneur, if you keep that in mind, it's just like what you said. We're, we're trying to get our product out. We're trying to get our sales floor done. We're trying to do all of this stuff. But how you're doing it is creating the culture of your organization. So you want to be very mindful in how those interactions are and and, and go within your team and, and all of that, which is going to translate into how they interact with your customers. And so when you keep that in mind, you'll be very mindful. But so what I say is that you want to be intentional about the culture that, that you that you create. And so so you do, so you are on the track of building because you want to build a culture that you want, not the culture that you don't want. If you're not intentional about building culture, you'll eventually build the culture that you don't want, not the culture that you actually want. Yeah. So I'm going to segue us into a little bit of a different topic. I want to talk about setting goals and okay. the importance of setting goals. 
you had an episode, actually, I don't remember what number it was, but talking about the importance of, of goal setting, I found so much value in that episode. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of share with the listeners some of your thoughts on setting goals, the importance of it, what are some things to look out for, things like that? Yeah, you know, goals are something that I think people really struggle with. As much as we talk about goals and people do vision boards and people do all the stuff, and, and I'm not knocking anything, I'm just saying that, you know, I think sometimes people don't really do the, their homework on on their goals because when you when really when you set a goal um, and the way I talk about goals I, I think probably talked about it in that, that episode is you've got to have this aspirational so I just mentioned a vision board whether whatever mechanism you use you've got to have this aspirational thing that you want to do what do you want to accomplish what's the big objective? And what does it look like? What is it going to feel like when you're there? You want to experience that that goal. I mean, and the, the the easy thing, we're about to round around to J- January. Everybody's going to want to get in shape and lose weight and feel great. All right. You know, we all can identify with that. Um, but when it comes to even in business, you want to have that big aspirational goal, something that you're going to strive, strive towards and really think about what that goal is. And then in short, you know, think about what is it going to really take to get there? Because a lot of times that's what we forget to think about when we, when we set our goals. Um, because I, I'm, I, everybody talks about like a smart goal model and, and all of that. And I think that's, and I actually teach that. I teach a smart goal model, kind of a smarter uh, goal model. So yeah, it needs to be specific, needs to be measurable. Um, attainable <laughs> i always forget that yeah i, I think actionable yeah think, actionable yeah. well my I, you know the the um i i kind of i think one of the things that i talk about with a smart goal model instead of attainable uh just because i like to go for ambitious goals so mm-hmm. I, I instead of attainable i like the word ambitious it needs to be a little bit ambitious so it needs to stretch me it needs to because when you set an ambitious goal that is really what where the magic happens. Because if I set a goal that I know that I can achieve, then okay, so for me, just I'm gonna be real simple here from a, like a personal standpoint, I'm gonna go to the gym every day. I already do that. That's probably gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not ambitious at all. But if I set a goal that I'm gonna, you know, accomplish some kind of weightlifting feat. I'm going to lift so many pounds of something. Run a marathon. Run a marathon. Yeah, that's actually my go-to example. I'm going to run a marathon, which, you know, I'm going to go on record and say that's never going to happen. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not built for that. Uh, But, yeah, but it needs to be ambitious because it's like, you know, that's when you discover things. That when you discover things about yourself. You find out different ways of doing things. You find out, you know, what I can live with, what I can live without, this, you know, what I'm willing to sacrifice, what I'm willing not to sacrifice, how hard I can work, and, and you make it more am, ambitious. And then, you know, when you make it relevant, you know, it's relevant to you, it's important to you, and of course you need a time, time stamp on it, like when you want to accomplish this goal. But one of the things that I really focus on is once you've kind of got this whole smart thing going, is you really take the time... Um, even you think about a goal being relevant and saying, what am I willing to do to get to this goal? And I think that's where people kind of miss it. Or what is it going to take? Because oftentimes, let's go back to an entrepreneur. Let's say I work a job right now and I'm going to start a business, whatever it is. And, you know, I have a family, I have, you know, a, a, a spouse and kids and, 
you know, that whole thing. People are going to school and soccer practice and all that kind of stuff. We have financial um, responsibilities. What is it going to take for me to start that business? Am I going to have to work later in the evening? Am I going to stay up a little bit later, get up a little earlier? What is it going to take? And really kind of outline what is it going to actually take for me to get to that goal? Because that's where most people fail. Whether they're trying to lose weight, start a business, uh, you know, achieve whatever goal, they don't take into account the actual process of getting to that point. Because once you figure out that process, whatever that may be, and it's, okay, I need to, I'm going to be staying up a little bit later, I'm going to put the kids to bed, or I'm going to take care of my responsibilities, I'm going to, you know, whether in your, if you're in a relationship, you're going to, you know, say goodnight, and they're going to go to bed, and then you're going to stay up and work on your business, or whatever it may be, but figure that out first. And then those people that are involved in that process, and so this can translate in business too. So in business... Figuring out what you need to do to get there, you know, our teams are going to have to, you know, work a little bit longer. There's going to be some overtime. There's going to be, you know, what if I'm a sales managing a sales team, we're going to have to get on the road and travel more. You need to be able to create this realistic preview for everyone that's going to be involved in accomplishing this goal, because uh, really, I mean, there's a lot of goals, especially in business or, or doing something new that you don't accomplish by yourself. If you have other people in your life, they also are going to have to sacrifice, whether you're trying to run a marathon or starting a business. And so then you need to go and talk to them about their involvement in helping you accomplish your goal and recruit them in the process. And where I really started to think about this was in, in business is um, the a finance team might say, we're going to install this great new software that's going to make everyone's life easier. And then and they say, we're going to, uh, you know, the by the second quarter of the year, we're going to have this software up and ready to go. But they don't talk to the sales team about it. <laughs> they don't talk to, you know, the the other parts of the company about it that's going to use the software that's going to, you know, have to, to do that. And then you get halfway down the road and the sales team's like, where's my pricing structure? What are our new things? Where's this? How do I enter things into the system? And you don't recruit the people that are involved. Therefore, you maybe miss the mark on your goal. So the so to kind of sum that up, it's number one, taking account of what you need to do to get to that goal. And then recruiting those people that are involved in helping support you get to that goal because that's going to increase your chances of success. And, and I can give you a number of examples, but um, but but that's really the big big key I think in in gold because uh, you can go anyone you know when you're li- all the listeners you can go and Google anything about smart goals and it's not wrong. I mean you do that you're gonna you can you'll have a good structure for a goal but if you don't take an account of what it's gonna actually take and then recruit the people around you into the process whether you're running a business or it's in your personal life it's going to impact your success to being your your success rate in your goal. Yeah, when you start talking about managing change as you're sharing that story about a new technology solution, whenever I think about digital transformation, I think the common misconception is that it's about the technology. Mm-hmm. It's not. The, the technology is increasingly becoming commoditized. Mm-hmm. It's about the people and managing the change and making sure that you you have all the key stakeholders involved. You have all the people that is going to impact their lives, yes. figuring that out, and then making sure you have that conversation with them so they know what's in it for them mm-hmm. so that there's buy-in so that they can help you through that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think that's so important and something that I've actually, I mean, 
I've learned with working in technology with technology companies is that you can be you have the greatest software in the world. But if it doesn't meet the needs of your customer or whether that's internal or external or doesn't, you know, it makes life a little bit more difficult or they you didn't you forgot one step in the process. You have to. And again, when you're talking about change management, you know, going back to our earlier conversation where OD comes into the people side of change is, you know, everyone wants to know what's in it for me. How is it going to impact me? How is this new software going to change my life and make my work easier? And that's one of the things is the more you involve them in the process, um, the better the outcomes are, are going to be because then they know then you've hit every step of their process and you know that your software is going to work. Yeah. So one of the questions that I like to ask my guests, what is your mission? My mission, you would think that I have like this articulated <laughs> <laughs> This articulate uh, articulated mission statement, given that that's what I do, but but really, um, what what I see myself as, and what what really motivates me, my mission in life is to really help people perform at their highest level, help people in organizations perform at their highest level. Um, even you know, I can't, I can barely sit down with almost anyone at some point, and I have a relate if I have a relationship with them, especially younger people in my personal life. I mean, you know, like, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? How can I help you? Any advice I can give you, whether you're my <clears throat> nephew, my niece, or whatever, that's where it, it happens a lot, or just to young people in general. Um, and and what's, what I still feel so fortunate about is that I get to do that in my professional life. And it's at my core. At my core, I'm a teacher, I'm a trainer, I'm a coach. And in the, with that being my core, Part of my mission is to just help people become the best versions of themselves, help organizations become the best versions of themselves. And I feel like that's what I do in my role as in, in learning and organizational development is helping people within the organization be their best so that the organization can then be their best. And that translates for me professionally. And this is what I like about that. It translates for me professionally. It translates for me personally as well, because if I have a relationship with you, um, then I'm gonna do what I can to help you be your best. If you ask, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna coach you unless you want me to, but because <laughs> that could be annoying. But if we're talking about something around your goals or what you want to do in life, I'm definitely gonna use my expertise to to help guide guide you in the in the in the right direction, and it just comes out naturally, yeah. to be honest. So, yeah. well, my it, mission is to you know help people be their absolute best. That's awesome. So, what would you say is the best piece of advice or guidance for somebody that knows they're meant for more? They know that they're capable of so much more in their life, but they're maybe nervous or hesitant or afraid to to go meet with someone like you and, mm -hmm. and start investing in themselves in terms of like getting a personal coach so that they can learn to be the best version of themselves. What would you say is the best piece of ex advice for someone that's in that position? Yeah, and this is probably, this is probably said a lot, but I feel like it's so true is that your best investment is in yourself. And part of that is understanding and learning more about who you are as a person and then being the best expression of that person. And I, I say that because, you know, I've experienced that in my own life, but then also 
um, what a coach does, what someone like, like me does within an organization or is it for an individual is help pull that out of you. Because what we often deal with in this journey of life is fear, intimidation, and you can be as big and bad as you want to. <laughs> and if it been accomplished, all the stuff that, you know, we may even you may even be a household name. We deal with fear, intimidation, insecurity in some way. And what a, a good coach or, you know, even in, in an OD setting does is help you address some of those issues and highlight it for you. Like we talked about earlier, bring self-awareness, which then helps you manage through those things. And you say, well, I can do it on my own. But how long is that going to take? <laughs> if you want to move, you know, if you want to move a little bit faster, it, it's the best thing that you can do is take the time and invest in yourself, invest in a coach, invest in. I know when I've been, I've invested in a coach myself. And so I'm, you know, I do I'm, I'm practicing what I preach. And and I've, I've had the most growth in my life at the times when I was investing in, in a in a coach, the times when I've had a mentor uh, that type of thing. It really helps you grow. So that would be my my number one advice is take the time to invest in yourself. I love that. It's one of the things that also kind of drives me with with the the coaching and mentoring that that I do with people is, you know, it's taken me 20 years to get where I'm at now in, mm -hmm. in my career. And my goal, and, and yes, I have a, a special place in my heart for technology professionals because mm -hmm. that's kind of where I came from and right. I, can, I can relate. And I can also build that trust very quickly because I can communicate on their level. We can talk about infrastructure. We can talk about right. WAN architect. We can talk about all of that stuff and build that trust. But for me, one of my, my goals is to try to help people condense that 20 years of experience down and mm -hmm. say maybe they can progress in in 10 years yeah it's it's tricky it's very challenging oh, because i've seen that a lot of people you can try to teach them and beat them over the head with a sledgehammer with it they're not going to get it until they live it themselves mm -hmm. but i think if you can raise that awareness so that whenever they go through that challenging moment they can realize oh wait a second this is that moment. I need to learn from it, and I need to yeah. be able to grow from it. So, yeah, I, I love that mission, and I can definitely relate to it. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's just good sometimes to have some someone hold up that mirror to you and say, "Look, you know, look, this is you. How, how can we how can we improve this guy in the mirror?" Yeah, yep. and uh, that's always helpful. I love it. So, before we start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? No, I think this has been a really great uh, conversation. You know, one of the things that, you know, as far as like what I'm doing now is uh, really, you know, I've uh, made a shift in my business where right now I'm only taking coaching clients. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of one of the things that I've really focused on in the last few months, especially is really just working with especially leaders one on one in, in their growth and development. Uh, because I think it's it's where I feel I make the highest impact. And so, you know, that's one of the opportunities that, you know, if anyone wants to wanted to contact me, they can at theorsonwells.com. And, under, you know, you're probably going to ask me that. Yep. <laughs> and uh, you can contact me there and, and reach out. And I'd, I'd love to chat with you. Perfect. All right. Well, Orson, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. I can't thank you enough for making this trek all the way out to <laughs> sit down and have this conversation with me. So for all of you listening, please go check out theorsonwells.com and y'all have a good one.